Uh, good afternoon, everyone. You know, I was reading Joel Olstein's Become a Better You, which I continue to highly recommend. And in it, Pastor Joel mentions a Native American Cherokee tale. And in this tale, a grandfather tells his grandson that inside every man is a battle between two wolves. One is angry, jealous, unforgiving, proud, and lazy. The other is filled with love, kindness, humility, and self-control. So the grandson asks the grandfather, which wolf is going to win? And the grandfather says, whichever one you feed. You know, similarly, there's a war within us between our new man and our old man. The flesh, our sinful nature, that represents the old man. But if we want to continue to be formed into the image of Christ, we have got to feed the new man by forming good habits. And so I last week finished up my sermon series on wisdom with time. And I talked about redeeming the time. I talked about being punctual. Why am I exhorting you guys to live your lives with greater faith and greater excellence? It's because when you are continually, by the grace of God, seeking to grow, and you're forming those good habits, you're feeding that new man. And that new man is able to fulfill the fullness of God's will. That new man can influence and change the nations. But the old man is defeated, hopeless, full of bad habits, struggling with futility. But the new man is hopeful no matter how many times he falls because he knows that the spirit who, Christ, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is living inside of him. And so just like this Cherokee tale, feed, feed the, the, the new man, feed the right wolf, all right? And your life will be full of great uh, power and glory to God. For the last two weeks, I've been preparing, I have been preparing for my ordination exam. And part of the exam was multiple choice questions for the New Testament, multiple choice questions for the Old Testament. You know, very like obscure facts. Things that you probably don't know. Like, who were the descendants that came out of Lot's in sexual, sexual relations with his daughters-in-law? Uh, you guys don't know that, right? And most people don't know that. Anyway, those kinds of questions are on there. Multiple choice. And then there are two sections for essay. And for the essay uh, section, there was a systematic theology essay section. And then there was a church history essay question section. And on the exam, what they do is they give you an exam study guide. They send you four questions for each section. And you have to prepare those questions because when you show up to the exam, two of those four are going to appear. And you just have to answer one of the two. Okay? So if you do your math, all you have to really do is prepare three questions. <laughs> all right? Because uh, you guys get it, right? All right? You only have to prepare three because only two appear and you only have to answer one. 
And so for the systematic theology section, one of the questions that I had to prepare was this. It went like this. Describe the imminent trinity and the economic trinity. Has anyone heard of these terms before? How many of you guys have actually heard of these terms? Raise your hand. Anybody? Where are my seminary students at? <laughs> Come on, Pastor John of Myungwa? Okay. Okay. Who can explain what the economic and intimate trinity are? Okay, well, I'm going to educate all of you then today. Um, when I saw this essay question, it piqued my interest in particular because when I was in California a month ago, Riding in the car with Pastor Benjamin, he had mentioned it. And it was the first time I heard it explained. I had, I had heard these terms before, but it was the first time I had heard it explained. And man, it was powerful. And I remember wanting to be like, can you say it again so I could record it? You know, things like that, but I didn't get a chance to. And so today what I want to do is I'm going to share about what I learned in preparing for my exam and how it relates to the powerful revelation that Pastor Benjamin spoke in the car in California a month ago. Are you guys ready? This message is going to set you free. So if you don't want to be free, you need to walk out right now. Take all them chains and bond, walk out right now. Because this message is going to set you free. You guys ready? I'm going to first talk about the Trinity. The term Trinity is a theological term used to define God. As an undivided unity expressed in three distinct persons. As God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now this concept trinity is not a Greek idea derived from philosophical speculation. It is a concept that accurately describes the revelation of God as revealed in scripture. Although the term Trinity never appears in the Bible, the Trinitarian structure clearly appears throughout the Bible. Everybody say Trinity. Trinity. The Trinity came under attack in the second and third centuries. You know, as the apostles, they died out. And then the people who knew the apostles, they started getting old you know, I couldn't see no more and, you know, wasn't, wasn't that strong a leader. They, it started getting attacked. And one of the beliefs that came up during the second and third centuries is a term called modalism, a concept called modalism. Everyone say modalism. modalism. It's also known as like Sabellianism and there's other concepts for it. Now, modalism holds that there is one God who can be designated by three different names at different times, but that these three are not distinct persons. Instead, they are the different modes of one God. Setting you free right now, for some of you in here. This belief was developed in an effort to protect Christianity from embracing tritheism, a belief in many gods. In an effort to avoid polytheism, tritheism, Uh, Some of these church leaders, they developed this thing called modalism. One God, different modes, but they're not distinct persons. It's just one God. A modern manifestation of this can be seen among the oneness Pentecostals. 
Uh, if you guys don't know who the Oneness Pentecostals are, I don't like dropping names, but I will just uh, drop a couple. Give you, give you an example. Uh, there's a book called God Chasers by Tommy Tenney. If you know Tommy Tenney, you read the back of his book. He is a Oneness Pentecostal. Wonderful man of God, loves God. But his view of the uh, Trinity is along the lines of modalism or form of modalism. Uh, a guy named T.D. Jakes, very popular, famous preacher. He was traditionally a oneness Pentecostal. Recently, he was confronted by Mark Driscoll and some other sharp Reformed theologians and church leaders. And T.D. Jakes has said that I'm no longer a oneness Pentecostal. Okay, I haven't seen that video myself. I'm looking for it on the internet. Haven't found it yet, but that's what I heard. Okay, but you got to understand, there's a uh, denomination called One of Oneness Pentecostals, and they hold to modalism. Now, one of our church fathers, his name was Tertullian, and he came against modalism and said that even in the Book of Genesis, there is a hint of plurality in the Godhead. For example, in Genesis 1.26, you have God saying, let us make man in our image. I mean, who is God talking to there? The angels? Why would he create man in the image of God and angels? Right? And so there's a hint of plurality there. Tertullian also says he was the first to actually formulate the deity of the Holy Spirit. And he formulated the clearest doctrine of the Trinity that was developed up until that time. And what he said, he used some very important words. And in the English, he said that God is one in essence or substance, yet three in persons. One in essence or substance, but three in persons. There's another church father, Origen. He also developed uh, more the idea of the Trinity. And he developed the idea of what's called the ontological Trinity. Everyone say ontological. Most of you don't know what that word means unless you are a philosophy major. How many of you guys philosophy majors in here? Wow, two people. Okay. Yeah, philosophy is not that popular with Asians. I was, I was expecting the non-Asians in here to raise your hand. I guess, I guess you guys were engineers and teachers and whatnot. Anyway, uh, Arjun developed the idea of the ontological trinity. The word ontological refers to uh, the study of the state of being, you know, the, it's the metaphysics of being. So when they say ontological, it's talking about the Trinity, how God is, his state of being. And the Trinitarians uh, say that the relationship in the Godhead has always been co-eternal, meaning that there was never a time where the Father and the Son did not exist. They have always existed with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have always been co-eternal. And Origen also said that the Son, Jesus, is homoousios. Homoousios, meaning the same nature, essence, same nature with the Father. He also taught this thing called hypostasis, where uh, talks about the concept of three persons. But Origen also pushed forward the doctrine of the Trinity, one of our church fathers. Later on in the 4th century, there was another form of teaching called Arianism. Everyone say Arianism. Arianism. 
Arianism set the church ablaze with controversy. Let me tell you, people were killed. People were imprisoned. It was uh, mixed in with politics because Constantine was in power at that time. And, you know, he, he did a little, you know, back and forth. He didn't really know what he believed because he wasn't a very good theologian, you know. And uh, this group of people who believed in Arianism during the 4th century, they denied that Jesus was of the same essence with the Father. But they held instead that the essence was not the same, homoousios, but rather similar, homoousios. Everyone with me? So Arianism says that Jesus is not of the same essence, just a similar essence. Now this is very, it's just, the debate is over one letter. Homo, usios, homoi, usios. But if you lose that letter, you might just lose your soul. Because what scripture teaches is clear. Scripture does not teach Arianism. Arianism said that Jesus was a created being. And this is why in the scriptures, he is subordinate to the father. You know, he takes his orders from the father. I only do what the father is doing. I see the father doing. He is subordinate. He is obedient to the father because when it comes down to it, he is higher than man, but lesser than God. Because he has a similar nature, not the same. A modern manifestation of this is Jehovah Witnesses. You know, the reason why Jehovah Witnesses are called Jehovah Witnesses is because they believe in Arianism. They believe that God the Father is the only one true God, and Jesus was a created being. He has a similar, not the same nature as the Father. And the Holy Spirit, he's just seen as the power and the influence of God on the earth. Not as a distinct person. And that's why they call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. Because they like to take the Bible very literally. And they believe that if you're going to refer to God, you must refer to him by the name that he has revealed. Which in the Hebrew is Yahweh. Or in an English pronunciation is Jehovah. A guy named Athanasius came along and he offered a strong defense. Of uh, the Trinitarian theology at what is called the creed uh, at the Council of Nicaea. They came up with a creed. And in this creed, they stuck with the Trinitarian formula. And uh, if you guys know the Nicene Creed, you guys, uh, there's an adaptive version called the Apostles' Creed. Right? Some of you guys know the Apostles' Creed? I believe in... God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Okay, that whole thing is an adaptation of the Nicene Creed. And the first few lines, what is it? It establishes the Trinity. Uh, Athanasius, uh, this Nicene Creed was supposed to silence the debate, but those who subscribed to Arianism actually uh, opposed it even more fiercely. And it went on for like years and years. A lot of people getting killed, a lot of people getting imprisoned. Fighting over and against this heresy. Athanasius affirmed what earlier church fathers said. And he said that the Son and the Spirit are of the same 
essence, the same substance, the same essence and nature. Homoousios as the father. All right. Very good. Quick overview of church history and the Trinity. Now, now let me talk about the imminent Trinity and the economic Trinity. Do not be intimidated. I'm going to make it real simple for you. And it's, I'm going to flip it around and I'm going to apply it to you and you're going to get shocked and it's going to set you free. The imminent Trinity and the economic Trinity are two ways in which church theologians have attempted to describe the triune nature of God. First, the imminent Trinity or the essential Trinity. The imminent Trinity attempts to describe the Godhead in regards to his eternal being, his eternal nature, outside the limiting conditions of time and space. How God is known outside of time and space, his nature, that's imminent Trinity. Economic Trinity discusses the Godhead in regards to their distinct roles in human history. All right, economic trinity. So the first regards the Father, Son, and the Spirit's ontological nature, their state of being. The latter regards the Father, Son, and Spirit's distinct roles in God's economy of salvation for mankind. The economic trinity describes how God reveals himself and interacts with mankind in the, the God's economy of salvation for men. That's why it's called economic trinity. Wow, I've lost like half the room already. Everyone wake up, all right? You got to stay with me. If you don't get these concepts, none of the rest of my message is going to make sense. You guys are mostly college educated. Do not, do not look at me like, oh, what are you talking about? Oh, there's so much Latin and uh, I don't understand. Hey, can you take yourself a little more seriously? This is very basic all right, and, we, and we, I need you guys to stay with me here. All right. Jesus, the son, is seen in the scriptures as having a subordination, as having a, he's submitted to the father. Right? You see that clearly in the gospels. He's dependent on God the father. He only does what he sees the father doing. The Holy Spirit is also described in the scriptures as having a subordination to God the father and God the son. Now, this is not because Jesus is lesser than the Father. But it is maintained that this subordination is one of function, not of essence. It has to do with Jesus' role, his function, his order, his office, his operation, not his nature. So the subordination is a matter of the economic trinity. When you see that submission, that obedience, that is a function of the economic trinity. You guys hear me? Now, if we do not have the imminent trinity, then not all the persons in the Godhead are fully God. Right? If you don't have imminent trinity, then the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they're not all fully God. But if you do not have economic trinity then you lose the distinctions within the Godhead. Because, you know, God is just one. So they all must be just one. And you might even fall into thinking, oh, maybe modalism is true. Maybe what the oneness Pentecostals are saying is true. But that's not what the scriptures teach. That's not what our church fathers bled and died for. So both approaches 
imminent trinity and economic trinity are indispensable. This can be summarized in the phrase, equal in being, but subordinate in role. Equal in being, ontologically, but subordinate in function, in role. If you're with me, say amen. All right. Half of y'all are lying, but it's okay. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Holy Spirit, help. All right. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Let's look at what the scriptures say. Really interesting. If you do a systematic study of the New Testament, Trinity is everywhere. Matthew chapter 3. This is the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan River. I'm going to read verse 16 and 17. So this is Jesus. He is submitting himself to his cousin and saying, will you baptize me in this water? Look at verse 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he came up out of the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, 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 <laughs> with whom I am well pleased. Okay, stay with me here. If you look at this passage, what do you see? You see the imminent Trinity. Why? Because you have Jesus distinctly there. And then you have the Holy Spirit descending on him distinctly there. And then you got somebody else upstairs in heaven saying, this is my beloved son, 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 son. <laughs> okay. And so here at the baptism of Jesus, you don't see modalism. You, if it was modalism, Jesus would be getting baptized and all of a sudden he'll transform into a dove and he'll start descending. And all of a sudden he'll transform into the father and say, this is my beloved son, which is really me. Okay. <laughs> you don't have that. There are distinct persons of the Godhead, all fully present here at the baptism of Jesus. You know why? Because this is Jesus' ordination ceremony right here. I'm about to get ordained myself. Anyway, I don't know if it's the same as Jesus', but uh, this is ordination ceremony. And uh, in fact, when Jesus, at the end of Matthew, he commissions the disciples to go out and make disciples of all nations, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Once again, you have evidence for the imminent trinity. Okay? The Godhead consists of three persons. And they are all co-eternal. And they are of the same essence. Not similar. Same essence. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Second Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to look at verse 13 and 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read that. Actually, let's read that together. Verse, uh, let's just read verse 14. Okay. One, two, three, go. 
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. What you have to know about Pauline theology is in Paul's letters, when he uses the Greek word for God, he is often referring to God the Father. Okay, And so when he says here, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, he means the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This Trinitarian benediction is a verse that reveals the economic trinity. Okay? The formula is designed, which church is the letter written to? The church of Corinth. The church of Corinth was the most divided church in the New Testament. They had all kinds of fighting going on. All kinds of church discipline issues that were left unresolved. All kinds of division. And so what, the, what, what Paul is doing is he is formulating his benediction in such a way to bring unity within a divided church through their personal experience of the Trinity in their daily lives. You guys catch all that? Christ is mentioned first. Why? Because a person must experience the atoning work of Christ first. Before he can experience the love of God the Father and then the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is doing is he is bringing out the economic trinity. And he is crafting his benediction to parallel your experience of God. To bring about the unity of a divided church. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In light of the various heresies that the church has faced and still continues to face, a healthy understanding of the imminent trinity and the economic trinity goes a long way in combating false teachings and heresy. Now, you might be asking, what does all of this how does this apply to me? What does this have to do with me? You keep all your theological terms to yourself, Pastor. But I want you to encourage me today. I want you to teach me something today. I want you to improve my life today. Okay, what does this message mean for you? The message today is the first installment of a sermon series I'm beginning on relational wisdom. We need some relational wisdom in the church. I'm going to talk about relational wisdom with friends. Family will probably get covered. Relational wisdom with non-believers. As Christians who've been Christians for a while, sometimes we forget how to relate to non-believers. We need some wisdom in that area. I'm going to, I'm going to preach a powerful word about that. That's a word that's been developing for the last three months. It's going to be a powerful word. Wisdom and relating to non-believers. And we're going to also cover uh, wisdom, relational wisdom with homosexuals. Okay, that is a message that's never addressed or is poorly addressed. And I'm going to do my best job. It's going to be a holistic teaching. All right, but it's going to be real good. It's going to be real solid. It's going to be biblical, but it's also going to be real, like loving, caring, but wise. All right. Today, first message has to do with Relational wisdom with church leaders. 
Now, if you caught the concept, imminent trinity and the economic trinity, I'm going to take that concept and I'm going to apply it to my relationship with you as a pastor. So let's start there. As a pastor, as Christian Lee, I have an imminent identity before God and before you. And I also have an economic identity before God and before you. I have an ontological identity and I have a functional identity. Okay. What is my imminent identity? Okay. Before God, who am I? I'm a son. I'm a child of God. I'm a, I'm a blood-bought saint, a holy one of the Lord. It's my imminent identity. Before you, who am I? Imminent-wise, imminent identity-wise. I'm just a brother. Don't call me Pastor Chris. Just call me Brother Christian. <laughs> All right, that's what my old college mentor used to He emphasized the imminent identity of, of him as a pastor in my life. He used to make me call him Brother Michael, my, my, my mentor in college. But yeah, before you, I'm just a brother. Some of you might be like, really? <laughs> yeah, I'm just a brother. I'm just like you. All right. Ontologically, they're nothing, they're nothing special in my physical or spiritual being, okay? I'm just like you. We're all created equal in that sense. Now, let's talk about my economic identity. Not my state of being, but what I function, the roles that I, I've been given by God. Before God, I am, economic identity-wise, I'm a servant. I'm a teacher. I'm a pastor. Some people have called me a general because of the vision of our church, raising up an army. You know, one uh, woman of God came and said, you're a father and a general to your church. And when you say go, your church members say, yes, sir, and they move. Because God has called you to be a general in his army. Uh, yes, I'm a general. I'm also a spiritual father. Because Not because of uh, anything special about me or because I'm smarter than you. It's simply because God has appointed me as a spiritual father on the earth. To be a spiritual father to his churches. Before Pastor Benjamin... I'm just a son. But before my congregation, economic uh, identity-wise, I am a pastor, a spiritual father. In Galatians 1.1, the apostle Paul said, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. What's the apostle Paul saying in that verse? He's opening up his letter to Galatia and he's saying, I am an apostle, not because you say I'm an apostle, not because, and just because people say I'm not an apostle, I'm a fake apostle, doesn't mean I'm not an apostle. I'm an apostle, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. And I've been sent not by men, I've been sent by God. So I'm, a, I'm the pastor here at New Philly, not because Pastor Huang and Samunim said you're the pastor. But because of God. Ultimately, it's because of God that I'm here. So even if Pastor Huang and Samunim decide to kick me out, if God says, no, you're still to be a pastor, then I'm going to be faithful to that calling. 
And so that economic identity, that functional identity as a pastor, it does not come from man. It comes from God. And all man can do is approve of it. When I get ordained on April 21st, hopefully tomorrow I got an interview. I got to sing some praise songs and convince this ordination board that I'm a Christian. (laughs) Isn't that great? The way they verify you're a Christian is sing a praise song. And then they observe how you sing it. Creating me a clean heart. That's not a Christian. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't know how they do it, but they may, I heard they make you sing. That's what uh, some of my humbiz have said. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about your imminent identity. Your imminent identity before God, what are you? Just like me, you're a son. Before the church leaders, your imminent identity is you're just a brother. You're just a sister. Let's talk about your economic identity. Before God, your economic identity is you are a servant. You are, some of you, you are teachers. Some of you, you are pastors. Some of you, you are community group leaders. That is your academic, I mean, uh, economic identity. Now, your economic identity to pastors Christian and Aaron, what is your economic identity for those who have taken that step? Okay. Your spiritual sonship to Pastor Aaron and myself, your spiritual sonship to this church is an economic identity. Just in case you were wondering, when we get to eternity... When Jesus returns in his glory and we step into the gates of glory, stop calling me Pastor Christian. Because I ain't your pastor no more. I'm not going to counsel you. I'm not going to pray for you. It's all over. That was a temporary economic identity that by that time I'm going to be free from. Hallelujah. That's the truth. All right, when you get through the gates of glory, just call me Brother Christian. Because only the imminent identity lasts. But economic doesn't mean economic identity is not important. You just have to recognize what it really is. You see, there are churches that focus only on the imminent identity of church leaders. When they do this, this is the more the Western church. We lose distinctions in church leadership. We lose things like spiritual authority. Everyone is just a brother. Everyone is just a friend. There is no uh, pastor or uh, a person who has a particular spiritual gifting to lead the church. Everyone is just a brother and a sister. When you focus only on the imminent identity of church leaders. This is when leaders cannot lead with authority in the church. Uh, The church becomes just a big round table. Everybody gets an equal vote. Everybody gets an equal say. It's this democracy. Come on, democracy is the best model for everything, right? Including the church. And, um, you know, unfortunately, reformers, they took that and they, and they applied it. And you know what? It's not working everywhere. The Presbyterian system is not working everywhere, by the way. And that's one of the things that are discussed right now by young church leaders. That that equal uh, vote system, democratic system ain't working. You need a visionary. You need somebody that's accountable before God for the vision of the house. You can't vote for a vision. 
It can only be revealed and be, you have to be faithful to the vision God gives. And a big round table leadership is not the leadership found in scripture. The church leadership found in scripture has an order. There is a hierarchy. There are positions of authority. And here's the thing. It does not have to threaten our imminent identity because it is a function of our economic identity. You know, well, I don't want to call you pastor. I don't want to recognize you as my community group leader. You know, let's all take turns leading Bible study. You ever been to churches like that? Everybody takes a, a, somebody don't even know the Bible. It's their turn. And that, that's a painful week. <laughs> every, every, you know, I don't want to call you my leader. You know, you might get a big head. You know, you might be puffed up in pride. You know, I know you make mistakes just like me. You're human just like me. I don't want to reckon, I don't want to honor you as a leader. That are, that is the vocabulary. That is the way churches that focus only on imminent identity for church leaders. That's what they focus on. That's how they talk. Now, there are also other churches that only focus on the economic identity of church leaders. When you go to churches like this, it's very functionally oriented and they're not very relational. You will probably never talk to the pastor. Especially if it's a bigger church. And you'll probably never get to uh, even get prayer from that pastor. Because it's very functional. And this is a problem we see in the Korean church. Korean church focuses on the economic identity of church leaders only. And there's a clear hierarchy. Because the Confucian teachings sets up the Korean church to embrace this type of system. The pastor is seen as untouchable. And this, unfortunately, leads to a danger of abuse of spiritual authority. And people in the church tend to find their value in what they do rather than who they are. And they fail to relate to each other in love because they only relate to each other in the things that they do. Because the emphasis is on economic identity of the church leaders. I'm here to tell you today what we need, sons and daughters brothers and sisters what we need today in the church is a balance of both we have to understand these terms we have to understand they're not at odds with each other that they can peacefully coexist and we need a good balance to restore to the church when we teach about sonship here at new philly we emphasize both your imminent identity and your economic identity here at new philly we teach this thing called sonship it is a biblical teaching, which you can find throughout the scriptures. Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Your sonship to God regards your imminent identity before God. But your sonship to pastors Christian and Aaron regards your economic identity, not your imminent And so when I say, Larry Kim, you are my spiritual son. I'm not trying to replace God the Father. I'm just simply trying to reveal God the Father. Albeit weak and frail and, you know, in my own weakness. But by the grace of God, I'm able to reveal and manifest God the Father to Larry. So when I say, you're my spiritual son. 
Hyoju, you are my spiritual son. When I say spiritual son, I mean both male and female. So don't get offended. That's the teaching that's found in Galatians, all right? There's neither male nor female, okay? And when I say son, I'm, I mean both genders, okay? <laughs> you are my son, Hyoju, okay? Once again, that we're talking about her economic identity to the church leadership, not her imminent identity before God. I'm not touching her imminent identity. I'm not saying you are now my son. God is, God the father is not your father. I am your father. Who's doing that? Nobody's doing that. But for people who don't make this distinction, that's what they think is at stake. And so they, they close their hearts to something that is desperately needed in their spiritual walk. Because of poor mental processing. Because of a lack of understanding the first half of my sermon. Check this out. If you want to experience the love of God the Father in a deeper and deeper and more real way, you don't need me to be your brother. You need me to be your father. You don't need me to just be a friend. Who said I even want to be your friend? Hey, we get to choose our friends. God didn't call everybody friend in the Bible, by the way. We got to choose our friends. Anyway, you don't need me to just be your friend. You need me to be your pastor. You need me to oversee your soul. Not in a way like where I'm replacing how God oversees your soul, but in an application of that oversight in your life. If you want to experience the love of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't want to just address me. As just a human being. You want to address me as a man of God. That's anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) You don't need just another brother in Christ. What you need. Is a pastor. You need a spiritual father. You need to see me. In my economic identity. As a spiritual father. And you need to see yourself. In your economic identity. As a son. You need me to be your spiritual father because the truth is you don't have one or you have never had one because you have been so hurt by the church or you have been hurt by your biological father. So you got walls up and you don't want to trust anyone. And in keeping with this postmodern age, you want to be able to pick and choose what you like from the Bible. You want to be able to pick and choose what is right for you. Even when you clearly see the need for guidance for many important decisions in your life, guidance for in regards to biblical doctrine, guidance for wisdom in life, even though you desperately see your need, you refuse to let those walls down and you continue to walk in confusion and you lack clarity. And what I'm here to tell you today is what you need is a spiritual father that's going to speak truth, speak life. Give you a hug and show you some love. Some of you, when you guys see me, you avoid, you give me the cold shoulder. There are other people, they see me, they instantly hug. I can't get through the the hallway without getting hugs from them. But other people, they just like, oh, no hug. Is he gone yet? 
what we are, you know, when I was in seventh grade, I went to a retreat in Philadelphia. There's a guy named Pastor Sam. He does ministry in New Jersey now. And he, he was just a young guy in seminary. And I remember at a retreat at Lockin, at the end of the Lockin, he spoke a message. And I just went up to him and I just gave him a hug. I said, Pastor Sam, can I just give you a hug? And Pastor Sam said, sure. And he just gave me a hug. And as I was embracing him, I just started crying. And Sam, Pastor Sam looked at me like, oh, is everything okay? Like, you know, isn't that cute, you know? And for him, it was, isn't a cute, but for me, it was like, holy moment. Like, God, the Father was touching me. He's hugging me. He's the one who's wrapping his arms around me. And I had not felt that love from my biological father. And I had not felt that love from my Korean pastors in the Korean churches I grew up in. I actually never got a hug from a single Korean pastor growing up in the Korean church up until that point. And that was powerful. What you need Christian Lee to do for you is not to be your brother, not to be your friend. You got to learn how to embrace the economic identity that I have and that you have as a son of the house and as a spiritual father to you in your life. You know, even your community group, where we're taking sign-ups for community group. I want to encourage you. When you get into an assigned a community group, don't scrutinize and be critical of your leaders. Like, you can do that, but you keep that to yourself. <laughs> what you want to do instead is be thankful for your leaders, no matter what their weakness is. Even if, you know, uh, let's turn to um, Isaiah. Is Isaiah in the New Testament? All right. <laughs> Even if, you're, even if your leaders do stuff like that, they shouldn't be. They better know their Bible. But even if they do that, don't lose respect and be all critical. Be thankful for them. You know why? Because you don't need them to just be a sister. You don't need them to just be a brother. What you need in this season in your life is you need a community group leader to help disciple you to the next stage of your spiritual maturity. And if you will honor him, him or her as a community group leader, that person will set you free. That person will bring you to new levels of inner healing and wholeness. That person will deliver you from all those demonic voices you hear in the middle of the night. That person who can't find Isaiah in the New Testament. That person will set you free. Yeah, Isaac, you know, he's just, you know, he's just always, you know, he's always playing around. You know, I can't take him seriously. Uh, yeah, you know, he's just a brother. No, Isaac Kim, the community group leader, will do far more for you than Isaac Kim, the brother. We got to learn to honor people for the anointing that they carry. Jesus said, if you receive a prophet because he's a prophet, you're going to get a prophet's reward. And sometimes we got to learn how to honor the leaders that are in the church. You know, when I travel, when I travel, I'll go to different churches. And I'll go there as the main speaker. And sometimes young high school students and college students, they'll meet me. And they'll be, I'll be like, hey, my name's Christian. I don't say, hey, my name is Pastor Christian. That's, that's dumb. My name's not Pastor Christian. My name's Christian. <laughs> and sometimes if, I, if I'm like, you know, well, I am Pastor Christian. Who are you? You know, it just sounds like I'm insecure. <laughs> you know, and so when I meet young people, I say, hey, my name's Christian. How you doing? And I don't tell them I'm the main guest speaker, you know. They're like, oh, oh, you're Christian. You're the guest speaker. And you know what, what happens? Young, young people will do one of two things. They'll be like, 
Oh, Pastor Christian, we are so looking forward to your message. Oh, I've been praying and fasting, and I just feel like your message is going to set me free. And then there are other people that will say, oh, you're, you're, you're the main speaker. How you doing, bro? And, you know, the guy will be like 15 years younger than me. It's obvious that he should at least, like, try to honor me, like, as a guest speaker. Just, hey, bro, how you doing, bro? Hey, give me a pound, bro. And then I'm preaching during the retreat, and that person just looking at me like, hey, that's my brother. <laughs> All right, imminent-wise, yeah, we are brothers. But I ain't come to emphasize my imminent identity. I came to be your guest speaker, the man of God that's going to set you free. The man of God's going to speak some truth over your life. That's going to bring the word of revelation. That's going to take you deeper in your identity. You know, the economic identity of church leaders, let me say, was never meant to be overly institutionalized. Where people have titles, but not the spirit of the leadership position. This is what happened in the Roman Catholic Church. And this appalled the reformers. So the reformers, they threw a lot of these things away. And they threw away fatherhood and sonship as well. Because in the Catholic Church, what do they call the priest? Father. What do they call the main archbishop dude? They call him the Pope, okay? (laughs) Pope is just Latin for Papa. All right, and so in the institutional language of the Roman Catholic Church, you see spiritual fatherhood and sonship because that's church history. That's where we started. Apostolic leaders were seen as spiritual fathers. And the members of the church seen as spiritual sons. And so that language carried over, but the Roman Catholic Church over-institutionalized it. And they lost the substance and spirit of it and just carried the titles and positions. And by the time we came to the Reformation, the Reformers were greatly appalled by what they saw. And the thing is, Jesus was also appalled. Because when he stepped onto the earth 2,000 years ago, that's the same type of system he saw among the Pharisees. He says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 8. He says, you are not to be called rabbi, like these Pharisees. For you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father. For you have one father, and he is in heaven. Matthew 23, 10. Nor are you to be called teacher. For you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. That's what Jesus said. A literal application of this passage will forbid us from calling our school teachers teacher. Anyone who's ever called their teacher Sengsengnim, okay, is guilty of breaking this command. <laughs> A literal application will prevent us from calling our biological father's father. So every infant that says Papa, okay, is, is breaking this command. <laughs> Bad infant. <laughs> you are not to call me Papa. Call me Christian. <laughs> I, what, 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 what is that? That's ridiculous. A literal application of this passage is ridiculous. Okay, so it, it requires a little interpretation. Because people who oppose the spirit of sonship and the language that comes along with it, you know, we're, you know, you know, about one fifth of the church at New Philly, you know, they like to affectionately just call me Papa or hey, Pops, you know, 
And the rest of you just call me PC or Pastor, it's short for Pastor Christian. I never insist, hey, call me pa- Papa. Hey, hey, you're 10 years younger, call me Papa. You call me PC. You call me, I don't, I don't do that. I don't go around doing that. All I care about is that I carry the spirit of what it means to be a spiritual father on the earth. But people who take this passage and they say, you know, what? Here, here, here's biblical evidence. You should not call anybody father on earth because you only have one father in, in heaven. <laughs> what did you call your dad growing up? And they're like, oh, well, you know, that's different. <laughs> All right. So your uh, application of the scriptures uh, has no interpretation whatsoever. They're like, well, you don't need to interpret it. It's very literal. It's just you just take it literal. No, it's not. You got to interpret it because that's not what Jesus meant. If you look at the context of the passage, Jesus was forbidding the use of economic identity titles that are covered in hypocrisy and that ha- and they with leaders who do it without a heart of servanthood. He is forbidding the use of economic identity titles where it's just covered in hypocrisy. That's what he's doing. Matthew 23 verse 3 earlier he says, "Do not do what the Pharisees do, for they do not practice what they preach." That's the context. It's not a blanketing statement for every relationship ever in your life. He's talking about don't be like these Pharisees. Don't carry the leadership of the Pharisees because there's a bunch of hypocrites. Most of whom are going to hell. Not my words, Jesus. And Matthew 23, 5, he says, everything they do is done to be seen by men. In In that context, he says... Yeah, don't call them rabbi. Don't do, you know, because if you start using the vocabulary, you're going to fall into the same system. But instead, he ends this teaching by saying, the greatest among you must be your servant. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is talking about humility and servanthood in leadership. He's not forbidding vocabulary for every single human relationship that you're going to experience. And so what am I saying? The church, we have got to have wisdom, the relational wisdom with church leaders. And as church leaders, let me talk to church leaders. We got to carry the substance of leadership, not just the title. And we got to be pastors and teachers, spiritual fathers, and we got to do all that with the heart of a humble servant. Because that's the way Jesus came. Jesus is not only called the son Isaiah calls him everlasting father. Jesus functioned as a spiritual father to his followers. And Jesus continues to function as a spiritual father to his followers through local church pastors. Through community group leaders. They can manifest the love of God the father. But the question is, are you going to open up your heart? Or are you just going to cross your arms and say, he's just a brother. I know more than him. I know where Isaiah is. <laughs> we close us in prayer right now. Can I tell you something today? God is not insecure. When a spiritual father that he has gifted and anointed to be a leader in the church 
when the members of his congregation call him Papa, God does not feel insecure about that. He's not threatened by that because he knows that's not touching the imminent identity of those sons and daughters. It's just simply an economic identity. It's a temporary one. But it's a powerful one. If you will open your heart to it. Jesus said, I do not leave you as orphans. But Jesus sent his spirit onto the earth that we would experience our sonship to God that we would experience the love of God the Father that we would experience our identity as sons heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ God sent his spirit so we can experience all of that but you are so busy caught up in your mind saying oh I only have one father And that's my father in heaven. I'm only a son to God. Not a son to some local church pastor. And the whole time, heaven is weeping over your stubbornness and your lack of discernment. You're only keeping yourself from the graces that God has ordained to set you free, to take you to new levels. The question is, Are you willing to embrace that? If you're here from another church today, if you discern that your local church pastor back at home, that's your spiritual father, then go and honor him that way, even if you don't use the vocabulary. Once again, these things were not meant to be over-institutionalized. Honor him as your spiritual father if that's the case. But if you don't have a spiritual father in your life, can I just say that Maybe you should open up your heart to one. Maybe you should ask the Lord to lead you to one. Timothy had Paul. Who is your Paul in your life? Are you trying to do that for yourself? The postmodern generation tries to shepherd their own soul. And they just end up in all kinds of deception and dirt. Is your romantic relationship in a wreck? Because every time you enter into a romantic relationship, you do it your way or the highway. And the fact is, your way hasn't been working out so well. Because you lack self-control. Because you're not applying the wisdom of scripture into your romantic relationship. Or you're just doing your best. But you're kind of getting involved with all kinds of shady things. And it's ending up with breakup, heartbreak after heartbreak. And the Lord is saying, will you just... Will you just do it my way? Will you allow local church leaders to speak into your life? Will you allow them to hold you accountable for the actions that you have? Will you allow them to pray for you? Will you allow them to cover you? Or are you going to keep going out naked? Are you going to keep acting like a little orphan? Or are you going to start behaving like the son that you are? That's it. So I just want to pray for anyone in here.